Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. What does the Bible say about citizenship? There you go. There's a lead-off question for the day. Where in the word are you today? I know where you're going to be in the world. Like, you've got an agenda. You've got a schedule to keep. Your Google calendar has probably already sent you alerts about, you know, what's on the agenda for the day. Let's be sure we keep space in there for the divine appointments that God has set that aren't on our calendar, but certainly are on his agenda for us today as instruments of his grace in the world that he so loves. But what does the Bible say about citizenship? Lots of questions and conversations swirling today about civics. I mean, maybe that's not the word that people are using, but that is the conversation that we are having in our families, in our small constellations of uh, whatever our circles are. It could be around a bonfire. At a, at a hunting camp, which was the report brought to me last night at my house, along with a giant 10-point buck, for which I am grateful and say thanks to God this day. Um, yesterday, I heard someone say on the radio, not on this network, that civics, although th- this could have been said on this network, uh, civics should be required again in order to graduate from high school in the United States of America. Now, this person was lamenting the fact that apparently civics is only required for graduation in a handful of states across the country today. But from the rest of this individual's commentary about the events of the day, particularly the election process, I found myself wondering what exactly she thought should be taught in a civics course. So let's remind ourselves, civics is the study of the rights and responsibilities or the rights and duties of citizenship. But from what this woman was saying, I think it would be fair to conclude that she and I would hold very different understandings of both the rights and the duties of a citizen of the United States today. And so that thought led to another. What might a civics course for Christians include? And how might we approach discipleship as a civics course for the kingdom of heaven? What does the Bible say about citizenship? What does the Bible say about you and I as citizens of the kingdom of heaven? What are the rights and what are the duties or the responsibilities of those of us who have this dual citizenship? First and foremost, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, ambassadors and representatives uh, of the king and the kingdom, living in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Uh, It it made me remember... um, de Tocqueville's, uh, if you've never read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, it's, I don't know, it's probably 200 years old now. Um, He was a French diplomat. He visited the United States. He recorded his impressions of his travels here. The, uh, I guess it's a book. The book, the resultant book is called Democracy in America. Um, There's a lot in there uh, about just this open conversation about 
the duties and responsibilities, the rights and and role of a citizen. I think we would do well to revisit not only those kinds of conversations about the rights and duties of citizens here in the United States, but for Christians, for Christians. Have I made a thoroughgoing study of what the scriptures say, what the Bible says about citizenship, my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven? And yes, as a dual citizen then here in the midst of a kingdom of the earth. All right, uh, up next, Nick Pitts waiting in the wings. We're going to talk through a number of election-related headlines, and some of them are about you. All right, that's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. He is a good citizen of both. I'm going to just go ahead and declare you a good citizen of both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world we call the United States of America. Welcome, sir. Go ahead and just uh, send me your Venmo name so I can send you a little bit of money. Thank you so much. (laughs) Right? Like, don't you feel like that's a provocative conversation for us to have as Christians with one another and with the world? What does citizenship mean? And yeah, what's this dual citizenship business? Yeah, you know, that was the question I was actually talking to my neighbor about. Um, my neighbors are a little bit older than I am, and they have, this pandemic has caused them to really just isolate themselves. And there's not a lot that I can do for them because they're just, they're just very self-sufficient. But one of the things that I've realized that I can do is I can take their trash to the uh, curb on Fridays when our trash man comes by. And because I know that they they're not very comfortable, they really had tr- tried to limit their outside activity a lot over this time. And I was pulling it in uh, even this fr- this past Friday, and we just had a great conversation because Dallas has had uh, a little bit of individual individuals that have come out and celebrate. And it w- went back to asking the question: Is we've exercised our right, but now what is our duty? And I think duty is a pretty key component to citizenship. We we know the the rights that we have as citizens of the kingdoms that we're a part of, whether that's the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, but what is our duty to those ends? And so. Yeah. And the answer to that question um, is going to be different for Christians mm-hmm. who understand this dual citizenship reality and people not who that. are not dual citizens and really all they're interested in is, you know, the most that can be gotten here and now. And so I mm-hmm. do think there is a, there's a provocative conversation to be had among Christians um, on this topic as we seek to influence, you know, the the days in which we live and the places in which we live. All right. Hey, I, I know that we had teed up to talk about um, who voted and for whom the who voted. So talk about <laughs> a little bit what we think we know. Um, and I'm I'm framing it that way today because it seems as if we think we know some things and the things that we think we know may are subject to change. So um, what do we think, what do we think we know today about who voted in this most recent election cycle and for whom they voted? Well, we know a lot of people voted. I think we can all agree that we're we're seeing record turnout uh, here in the U S at levels of the, 
of the population that we haven't seen since around 1900. So that is that's something to celebrate that more and more Americans participated in this great American experiment, great American experiment known as the election. So that's something to celebrate. Um, we know that more Americans are voting, but we also know that that, that evangelical um, voting block individuals uh, that are we're often defined by who we vote for. Um, contrary to the biblical mandate to be defined by the love that we show one another. Um, but uh, evangelicals, it appears as though that evangelicals, we all remember the white evangelical uh, number, 81% voted for President Trump in the 2016 election. That number dropped a little bit is what it appears like we're starting to see um, uh, today. Uh, dropped this past time to anywhere from 74 to 76%. So it's still a pretty high number of individuals that were voting for President Trump, uh, white evangelicals that were voting for President Trump, more so than they voted for George W. Bush and Mitt Romney and John McCain. Um, but there was, a, there was a decrease in that. And so we're starting to see uh, differing blocks of individuals uh, and where they're actually putting their vote toward. So here is one of the um, questions that, and I don't know that you can answer it, but this is a provocative question that I have. How, how have the way that a person self-identifies, um, how has that changed in that four year period of time and have enough people sort of abandoned the evangelical label, um, that that affects the conversation as well, you know? And so I just think that, I think that there are always layers of conversation that we can have. And so when you and I are talking about what we think we know today about who voted and how they voted or for whom they voted. I just want everyone to remember, you need to have one-on-one personal conversations with other people, not necessarily straight up, you know, how did you vote? But, hey, I'm reading this headline about, you know, the the way that people voted and how they self-identify. And I'm just, I'm just kind of wondering, I mean, do you self-identify as an evangelical Christian today? And has that changed over the course of these four years? And if so, why? Like, the evangel has not changed. The Mm-hmm. Um, the gospel has not changed. And so our willingness to identify as evangelical Christians, if that has changed, we need to ask ourselves why. Yeah, I would, uh, I, if there was a book I could highly recommend that explains a lot of this, there's a book by Lillian Mason called Uncivil Agreement. And she coined the concept known as mega identity. And she writes that a single vote can now indicate a person's partisan preference, as well as his or her religion, race, ethnicity, gender, and favorite grocery store. Partisanship is, can now be thought of as a mega identity with all the psychological and behavior magnifications that it implies. And what, um, and what uh, Dr. Mason is arguing in this book, and I think she does so convincingly with the evidence that she presents, is that we're increasingly identifying ourselves by our political affiliations. Now, we all wear a variety of hats. Some of us are partners. Some of us are parents. Some of us are um, uh, citizens of a particular community. Some of us are Democrats. Some of us are Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. And those always had a rank priority. Well, what Mason is arguing now is that, uh, one, partisanship and our political preferences are running to the top of that those identities, and they're melding together um, and, and forming just this, what she calls, like I said, a mega identity, which is just very fascinating that we're allowing our, our political beliefs to be able to dictate and identify us as much as they are today. Wow. All right. Um, it occurs to me that you and I need to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to continue this conversation 
with Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. You can also find him, I don't know, you can find him other places. You can certainly find him at uh, the Institute for Global Engagement. We'll be right back. All right, continuing my conversation with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts. Um, hey, Nick, I just want to uh, – there's a lot of people that get up and listen when you're on, so that is really fun. Um, uh want to give a little shout-out here to uh, to Mary Rose. Mary Rose says, I haven't actually needed to get up early for quite a while, but I'm choosing to the last few weeks. So there you go. You want to just – Right. God love her, man. Right. Yeah. She is exceedingly kind and has uh, a patience that's probably uh, far great. That's for sure. All right. And on this um, relational, the, the relational capital that we're building out there every single day, like with our neighbors by, you know, hauling their trash to the curb. Uh, Jessica um, is weighing in and saying that um, her Pilates teacher yesterday greeted her with, hey, cheer for the blue wave. And um, Jessica told her, well, that wasn't actually my vote. And then her Pilates teacher was very embarrassed, but then thankful that Jessica was so gracious. And they have agreed to continue the conversation like in the future. And the Pilates teacher actually said, you know, you made my day. Um, And so thinking here about, you know, the relational capital that we're out there building every single day and how it is earning us the right to have deep conversations with people today. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, Carmen, I am convinced. I, I think I've run through these stats before. You know, I, I get so sad. I grew up with a, a an idea of wanting to be known by your community and, and really develop some key relationships with people that you kind of interact with day by day. And that's a part of just growing up in a small town. But when I hear stats like 50 percent of Americans don't know their neighbors' names, um, the number of friends that have dropped here in the U.S. over the past 25 years from 3.7 to 1.8. And then you just add on top of that the idea that we're in a global pandemic right now that really does limit the number of people that we're interacting with. It just kind of saddens me to know that individuals just, one, um, we're, we're just not knowing each other. There's not as much camaraderie, as familiarity with the people that are around us in our prox- proximities, in our locations. But also, too, just the, the, just the, the sense that I can be known through a computer that would be sufficient enough for me to be able to operate as a human. I just it just kind of saddens me to know that we're not building those relationships with the people on our streets, with the people at our gyms that we go to. And it's just just kind of I, I just am saddened by it because I think that there's so much joy in it. You have convicted me with that stat. 50% of people don't know their neighbors' names. We've had some people move in on our street during COVID, and I mm-hmm. don't know their names. And so I wave to them. Like, they're out walking their dog. I wave to them. I know they're new because I don't recognize them. And, um, I mean, I now I recognize them, but I don't know their uh-huh. names. And so there's that weirdness, like, right, because it's COVID. And, yeah, but you've convicted me. Like, I, I at least need to know their names. Like, that's just embarrassing. So I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna at least find out their names. Yeah, like it's it's crazy, especially when we talk about electoral politics, too, because it was like somewhere of 16 percent of Americans uh, said that they lost a friendship because of the 2016 election. Now, granted, there hasn't been that study that's been done yet on the 2020 election, but it's just becoming very easy for us to lose friends over politics, over Facebook, over any social media channels, et cetera. 
But what are we doing to gain friends? Well, what we know from research is that it's really hard for uh, uh, once you're 23 for men, 26 for women, or 26 to 33 for women, there's just not, you don't make a lot of friends after those years. And so it, you're, you're, it's unnatural to begin to make some of those friends when you get a little bit older. And so, it, it, but as we look at the biblical narrative, it, it appears as though Jesus had this propensity to one, draw people to him and two, keep people around him. And, and, and then just the kind of a golden command of the idea of, well, it's really hard to love your neighbor if you don't know your neighbor's name. That's exactly right. All right, Nick, so many things that you and I um, could talk about now. Let's, um, let's jump to the conversation about who, if Joe Biden actually does become the president of the United States, um, who might have his ear and yeah. in terms of his heart? Because there is a there's conversation out there about who president who a president Biden would listen to on faith matters. This this sort of mm-hmm. who would be his faith advisors? I think this is an interesting um, interesting conversation. Yeah, um, there's a great article in Religion News that uh, are at RNS that really does highlight some individuals that are probably pretty familiar uh, for uh, your listeners, that especially during the Obama administration. Individuals like Simone Campbell, um, uh, who is uh, works in, uh, with uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, uh, Joel Hunter, who's out of Orlando, he helped launch the pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And so there are some names that we can look to, but you know there there is a <laughs> there's a a part of me that doesn't want to be too pessimistic uh, because and this isn't just an indictment on uh, Democratic presidents, but this is also just an indictment or a kind of a testaments that we hear through books like Faith in the Halls of Power by Michael Lindsay, David Quo's Tempted by Faith. There's this idea that evangelicals sometimes, uh, or faith leaders, I should say, don't always receive the greatest hearing when they're in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, it, it just can kind of be kind of uh, uh, just disconcerting, to say the least, that we're, we're seen as a voting block to be approached on even years and kind of a, a group to be put up with on the odd years. So for those of you who are listening right now and you have thought it was great that President Trump has surrounded himself with um, with faith, people from a faith perspective, I want you to consider how broad that category of individuals might be. Um, It's actually pretty broad with President Trump. It's not broad, though, across uh, across faith lines. So. Um, I think that a President Biden would have faith advisors from uh, certainly beyond um, the Christian faith. He is going to have advisors who come from the Islamic faith. He is going to have advisors who come from the Jewish tradition. And he is going to have advisors who come out of absolute secular humanist um, positions, even as a practice of as if it is a faith. And um, it almost helps us get on an equal footing as Christians. Like, if you're going to have everybody else's view in the room, then you ought to at least have the Christian view in the room as well. I think that it's important for us to recognize that the Christians who are going to be in the room um, may consider, at least some of them are going to consider themselves evangelical Christians. Um, mm-hmm. There is a faith engagement director who actually grew up in an evangelical church. His name's Josh Dixon. Dixon, if you've signed up for the 
um, you know, for like the faith outreach of the Biden campaign, all the stuff comes from Josh Dixon. So I'm, I'm certain that, you know, he's going to be influential. And then there's pastors like Doug Paget and Brian McLaren. Those are names that at least some of our listeners are going to recognize. Um, and they, you know, they have considered themselves at points in time a part of the evangelical Christian conversation. They are no longer. I would call them progressive evangelicals. And so we're going to have to learn how the conversations of faith are being had among progressives, particularly if our only conversations have ever been had among what we might consider conservative evangelical Christianity. Yeah, you know, Carmen, you bring up a great point, and and I think it's important for uh, something that guides my thinking when it comes to uh, faith engagement in the halls of power is is just the reality that uh, as Christians, I, I don't think we want a privileged seat at the table. We just want to be given a seat at the table. Um, I, we don't we we come from a, a mentality. I always think about the Spurgeon quote. Um, uh, I don't I don't need to defend the Bible. I just it's like a lion. I just have to unleash it. Um, mm. That our our bent is that we are we're simply we we're not we're just asking for a level playing field. And when the, the playing field's leveled, like our prayer has always been, regardless of who's in office, we're going to pray for our leaders so that we can live peaceably in the land. And a part of that living peaceably is sharing about the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And and, and I think that's just really important as we consider, again, faith engagement, whether it's in a Republican administration or a Democratic administration. We don't want a, the high seat at the table or the seat next to the king because we recognize that we see we're seated in the heavens right now, right beside the Father who is in heaven, interceding on our behalf. We just want we just want to seat the table so that we can we can be among the participants in this great American experiment that are pursuing after happiness, but sh- knowing that that happiness is sharing our happiness with others, which is the one who has come to be the source of all our joy. Amen. Amen. I I love the image. I don't have to uh, I don't have to in any way uh, control the lion or defend him. I just have to unleash it. I love that. All right. Um, hey, always, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you are precious. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank so you. So great to be with you, Carmen. Always. All right. That's uh, that's Nick Pitts. Follow him on Twitter at J Nick Pitts. We'll be right back. All right, so we want to invite you to, if you haven't already, download the Faith Radio app. It is new and improved. It is a great resource um, for you, particularly if you live in an area where, you know, frankly, your reception stinks. So for the person who texted in and said they had to run the extension, uh, I don't know, some kind of extension cord over the lamp this morning in order to get the radio to work, uh, try the Faith Radio app. You've got a smartphone because you texted me on it. Um, Go ahead, download the Faith Radio app, crystal clear signal, and... You can skip ahead, you can go back, you can share um, podcasts and shows with other people. Really, really one of the best ways to listen to Faith Radio and a great way to be a radio missionary. All right, next up, I'm going to talk with Kristen Getty about Evensong. we got a lot yet to talk about here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever experienced a one-way conversation? You talk to someone, there was a transfer of information, but no real connection. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. There was a student at our Heartlight Residential Program for Teens several years ago who fit the one-way conversation description. Ask her how her day was going, and you get a 20-minute soliloquy on all her likes, dislikes, her talents, her achievements, and her dreams for life. 
partway through this chatter, it occurred to me she was merely trying to engage in the best way she knew how, by impressing me. All she really wanted was to feel valued. She just didn't know how to go about it. So next time you're in one of those one-way conversations, look below the words and value the person. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. What a joy to welcome Kristen Getty back to the program. Um, Kristen, we're celebrating the Even Song release with you today. So welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful to um, to hear your voice. You and Keith have been so gracious to invite us um, all into your home this way in such unique ways with the things you've done um, on Facebook <laughs> with your girls, just inviting us to sing with you. Uh, the Sing Global Conference was different this year. And, um, you know, and you've also released this project in, in the midst of it all, Evensong, these hymns and lullabies at close of day. Just maybe talk a little bit about um, what this year has been like for you. <laughs> well, it's definitely not the one that we planned for in January, but I think everybody's saying that. And um, the suddenness, the, 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 the redirecting of things, it was, it was you know, it was... It was tricky back in March and very, I think one of the trickiest parts for me was you set up things like your childcare and the help and the school and everything in order for life to happen. And suddenly those little structures collapsed and we had to try and continue um, how to educate the girls, how to take care of them and how to continue on with with Getty Music. And so as you said, Sing, um, the Sing Conference became Sing Global and became a digital event. And so that was several months of a lot of work and um, a lot of um, imagination creativity to try and put it all together um, but we were so grateful for it and actually the, the reach of it was was huge and and so encouraging because many people who couldn't have come to Nashville or couldn't have contributed because of schedule were suddenly available and free and everybody could join in from their homes so that was a really great thing and um, then even song which we launched at Sing this year we had planned to record it in London and Northern Ireland and do all these things and suddenly had to reduce the geography to our home. And so that was a big shift as well. Um, our producer was able to record a lot from his home studio and then we were able to record a lot from our home. So um, we had to had to change a lot of how we did things, but um, it was also such a great time to be more with, with our four little daughters and to be at home. We really appreciate that time. I know a lot of people have. So you mentioned your producer in there. Um, is that Ben Shive? Mm-hmm. That is the wonderful Ben Shive. So the wonderful Ben Shive is also an elder at the church that I attend. And so You're kidding. Um, he's funny. precious That's to amazing. my heart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just talk a little bit about um, the relationship. I think that when, when you and I refer to a producer, like I mean something different on radio than you mean in yeah. terms of music production. Um, and mm-hmm. for the listener out there, they may really have no idea what that person Mm -hmm. does and how they're engaged. So talk with us about the relationship um, between you and Keith as the musicians with a producer Mm -hmm. like Ben. Yeah, so a producer that comes alongside um, the the singer and the song and tries to help bring together all the parts of of the creative dream of that 
particular project. So there, there yes, there are administrative things and organization of, of schedule and everything, but Ben's particular talent, you know, he is a wonderful musician and songwriter himself, was taking the songs and um, arranging them in, in, in fresh ways and talking through what would, what would be the instrumentation and then actually facilitating those recordings and gathering the musicians together, able to record them. And then just being part of the process from the very beginning, we met him back in March or in February, actually, before lockdown to chat through what we wanted and then he sort of walked the journey with us and yeah we're so grateful to him i just love that well the project is even song hymns and lullabies mm-hmm. at the close of day i'm talking with Kristen getty from getty music um all right let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit specifically about the project itself because even song sure. is actually a family tradition in your home mm-hmm. and it's something mm-hmm. that uh, people might be historically familiar with in terms of a mm-hmm. tradition in um, you know particular branches of of the Christian experience but not everyone mm-hmm. is familiar with this so introduce us to uh, the practice of even song and then the project mm-hmm. oh I'd love to and it, it, it very much the, the ancient tradition of, of even song um, and more liturgical churches it's a short service at the end of the day um, where they use prayer and Bible readings liturgies and songs to help and um, sort of redirect the heart and mind of the Lord and so then to sanctify the nights part of just shaping our days with knowledge understanding worship of the Lord and I, I just love that idea and it's sort of um, it was very similar to what we have tried to do with with our children and um, we have four young girls and we love to teach them to sing and teaching them hymns we've been doing a hymn a month for the last few years and using songs um, and hymns as a way of teaching them about the faith and encouraging them to to use their voices hear their voices together and to praise the lord to reflect on him and to learn about him and um i obviously they are still several are very young still we have a two-year-old and so i've used singing all the way and um, as they go to sleep at night particularly to help them go to sleep to help calm them and so we wanted to do an album that captured some of that so it's hymns which we sing with them and also lullabies that we have written for them and um, so that was that was sort of the the background to creating this project. And of course, we decided to do it um, the beginning of the year and into last year, actually. Um, COVID-19 sort of changed all the plans for recording it and yet recording it at home. And then its purpose seemed more important than ever when we feel so cut off from um, our regular churches, perhaps, and the usual um, Christian communities that we're part of. We were very much um, constrained in our homes, or, uh, kept at home. And so do you use do songs and singing together and creating like w- little worship services at home has been such a nourishing thing for our family and good for the kids and also good for my own brain and my own heart to be able to at the end of the day with them to be praying and to be and to be singing i love it all right i'm talking with Kristen getty she and i will be back in just a moment i want you to um hold in your heart and mind that concept of sanctifying the night through the practice of even song. The project is Even Song, and we're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Consider the stars in the sky. Look up and wonder. Can you count their number? All right, I'm chatting Consider with Kristen Getty. We are talking about um, the project that she and Keith have just shared with the world. Uh, they did so at the Sing Global Conference. The project is Even Song. It's hymns and lullabies at the close of day. Uh, Kristen, um, one of the things that uh, that you just shared with us is this practice of using song 
really throughout life in terms of, uh, you know, the way you are raising your girls. Talk about the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the songs, when I think about like how I let my life song sing, right? Like if I think about that idea, the songs mm-hmm. that are deepest within me are the songs that I probably learned earliest in life. Just talk about the importance right. of the practice of of using song um, when kids are little. Yeah. Well, we're little sponges when we're little, but of course, in the same way that kids um, learn their alphabet or learn all sorts of information through the songs they sing. And in fact, if I had to tell you what letter comes after another, I'd probably have to sing the alphabet song for you to <laughs> remember too. because we are, that's how God is, you know, God has created us in this way to, to, to sing, to appreciate sing, singing, but to hugely benefit from it. I think it engages our memories, our emotions, our imaginations in, 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 a, in a unique and, and very compelling way and for kids to develop this lifelong call in their lives to sing to the Lord and make music to him I think it's wonderful when it can start when we're little you know when we gather as churches together and um, when we can um, it's a it's a feast um, that we develop the appetite for at home and I've really enjoyed I think it's almost like low-hanging fruit I have found all the things I want to tell my kids what is it I want them to know what is it I want them to remember what can they not forget what is the encouragement they're going to need in their darkest hour let's sing those things and those things will will stay with them you know I think as a little girl learning great as thy faithfulness which my parents had at their wedding and then they taught it to me and then I sang it as a teenager I sang it as a student I sang it and I got you know in early years of being married and in work life and then as a mum and that song has just has traveled with me I love the fact that I sing it and I remember that my parents have sung it my grandparents have sung it God has been faithful to them he is faithful to me and I can look back and see the different seasons that he has been so along said all the all the new songs that we sing and um every generation has its new music. I think it's important to have a collection of songs, a core group of songs that we learn and we can carry with us through life. And often as the old hymns, those sort of more traditional folk melodies, which have a more timeless quality to them. So stylistically, they linger longer. And they're also songs that are meant to be sung very often, even without instrumentation. And the melodies are so singable and that is so helpful to us too. But to have lyrics that are easy to remember, beautiful poetry, with great, deep, vast ideas of the God of the Bible and of the gospel. It's such a wonderful gift that we uh, that we enjoy ourselves, but we want to pass on and give to our kids. So as I'm looking at um, the list of people with whom you collaborated on this project, and again, you yes, guys can check I this out. I was spoiled. <laughs> yeah. So gettymusic.com, um, Even Song is the project that we're discussing right now with Kristen Getty. So uh, mm-hmm. you've got guest appearances on here with uh, Vince Gill, Ellie Holcomb, one of our favorites. She's been on to talk about her book, Who Sang the First Song, and um, yes, just, we love she's that. just she's just delightful. Saria Hall. Oh, she is. And then I was delighted to see Sky Peterson on here just again because, you know, I this know. is right. The people with whom we get to do life. Talk about that. Talk about the people, not necessarily, you know, their names, but who are the people you guys do life with in terms of um, how you're raising your little people and how, um, you know, you're cultivating your own faith in this very strange time of pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, we like a lot of you know Christian families, we lean so much on our local churches, and we've been so grateful to our local church in Nashville, the Village Chapel, who switched to online services and have done all these wonderful things to keep trying to fold people in and reach out to them. We're so grateful to our pastor and his wife. They have been key. We're so grateful for um, our musical community. Over the pandemic, we were able to do these weekly hymn things, so it was great as a family to do them. But as we went on, we were able to invite some of our friends who live locally, like Andrea and Sky and and Ben came and Sandra McCracken came over and it was just so great to get to find new ways of of making music together because obviously for for the musician right now the pandemic has just been dreadful in terms of you know just cutting off so many spaces that we would usually travel to and play in and and so that's been really difficult so to try and find new spaces for us to collaborate and to be together because it's just it's so inspiring going you know collaborating with like-minded people and and, and music particularly which is the area that we particularly love and so that that has been um, fantastic then we are so grateful for um christian families um both keith and i are from northern ireland i'm actually talking to you from northern ireland right now and we were able to come home about a month ago and it's just been great to be close to them and see the girls being able to be with their with their grandparents and um that's been it's been a lovely thing because we miss them so much whenever we're away and it's been a hard thing for families to be apart um but we've been like lots of people we're so grateful for technology it's just amazing you know the fact we were able to record the album the way we did the fact we could go online and do facebook live events and um, the fact that we could be on facetime with our family thousands of miles away that's even that, that that's been such a gift I, I absolutely and I, I really I appreciate where you started that list and I appreciate where you ended it because I do think that mm-hmm. um particularly in in October when we are doing this pastor appreciation emphasis thank you for highlighting the role of you know of the pastor of the local church mm-hmm. and their role in your yeah. life um and and I do I think that we um we have learned to appreciate some silver linings about technology that we might have prior to the pandemic um, not have mm-hmm. recognized. And it has made it possible yeah. for us to be in worship together and um, and to see one another face to face, even when we can't be in one another's yeah. physical presence. What a gift. Um, right. So, Kristen, yeah. as we um, as we conclude our conversation today and again, you guys can find what we're talking about at GettyMusic.com. The project is Evensong. Um, it, talk with us about how we... Um, you know, the regular people out here can best support people um, who are in the musical community right now because there aren't events for us to go to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I listen to their music. Listen, you know, go on the streaming platforms and look at the playlists and just listen. Fill your homes with songs of the Lord and enjoy um, hearing you know, scripture and spiritual truths expressed in, in different, beautiful, and creative ways. And that's so encouraging. Get also, social media is also huge. Most people that you would listen to, they have an Instagram page or a Facebook page and they're, you know, sharing sharing their lives and stories behind the songs and and. Very Versus an encouragement, but it's so lovely. Even just messages, I know I so appreciate when we get little messages of encouragement that people listening to the songs and enjoying them. Um, that that is just always so great, especially when we feel cut off. You know, so much of the creative process, you're quite vulnerable in it. And then whenever you show it to the world, you take a deep breath and you hope people will like it and appreciate it. So it's just, no matter what age you are, it's always lovely to get encouragement. Um, so th- I would I would say that. Um, and then just watch carefully for as things open up, you know, and that th- th- you'll be excited about going back to events when they finally do, because I know I can't wait to be on the road again. 
Right. Absolutely. Well, we um, we thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Kristen, thank you for again for the things that you and Keith and your girls have been doing to uh, provide uh, weekly hymn sings for all of us on Facebook Live. Um, thank you for this wonderful new uh, project, Even Song. Hey, we just want to um, let everybody know the Gettys are pretty much out there everywhere on social media. It's at Getty Music. So it's at Getty Music on Twitter. It's at Getty Music on Instagram. Great places to uh, to connect with the Gettys and what they're doing and through them to others. So, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, thanks so much. What a delight. All right, friends, we'll be right back. <laughs> A little shout out to the Gettys here from listener Tammy, who says, I love the Gettys and how they have encouraged us with their family and their music. I've shared their songs with many to continue God's grace and encouragement. May the Lord continue to lift up their message of God's hope. Um, Amen. Also, um, a little back and forth today on the text line. Remember, you can always text me during the show at 877-933-2484. A little back and forth today um, from a listener, Jane. Um, Jane's... um, text thread actually started during my conversation with Nick Pitts, and she was wondering uh, if Nick had any thoughts about the comments of uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez, who has said that there should be a list kept of all of those who uh, who voted for Trump or, you know, conversely, who didn't vote for Trump. Like, right, there should be uh, that the people's names should be kept on the list. And um I responded, well, that would be quite a list. And she, you know, was asking if I realized that Christians are being blamed and uh, as a part of uh, white supremacy. And I said, oh, yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, and then I just wanted to uh, to affirm, um, like, I, that's a list I'd be on, right? And that's a list I would not be ashamed to be on because I have read all the way to the end of the book. So I I actually live with the expectation of persecution. I count myself blessed when people malign me for the name of Jesus. I rest in Matthew 5.11. I mean, you need to need to find a resting place in Matthew 5.11. I mean, blessed are we when people persecute us and say all kinds of nasty things against us uh, for Jesus' name. I rest in 1 Peter. I rest in the realities of the book of Revelation. Um, sometimes we just have to be reminded whose we are. Not who we are, but whose we are. God has got this because God's got us. We are literally in Christ. We're thoroughly covered. But that means that um, we're going to be under assault and under attack because people hate God and therefore people hate Jesus. And so if you're feeling under attack or you're feeling persecuted today because of your faith, because of the name of Jesus, just recognize that all of those attacks are actually directed at him. And he's able to handle that. He is able to handle it. So let me encourage you today to walk by faith and not by sight, secure in the knowledge of who God is and fully covered by Jesus Christ. We've got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.